Thanks for listening to the Burning Bush Podcast. Today we are talking about the Great Commission, which is part six of our series titled Our Beliefs. And we believe that all Christians are called and commissioned by the Lord to live to the glory of God and to lead others to Christ. Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20 say, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So part one of this podcast, we're going to talk about a declaration of absolute authority. The beginning of the Great Commission starts with Jesus declaring absolute authority in heaven and on earth. So let's examine three questions regarding this authority that he speaks of. The first question is this, who gave Jesus the authority in which he is claiming to have and did he not always possess this authority? The second question is how much authority is included in the phrase, all authority in heaven and on earth? And the third question, what does this trust in Christ's absolute authority do for the lives of those who truly believe this? All right, so the first question, who gave Jesus the authority that he has? Again, Matthew 28 verse 18 says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So who gave him this authority? Let's look at five different verses for the answer. First, Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now John chapter 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now John chapter 13 verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And now Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 through 21. God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And last, John chapter 17, verse 2. Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the answer to the question is God the Father gave it to him. And if you recall, this question has two parts, so let's tackle the second part. Did he not always have this authority? And since he's always existed, did he not have this authority for the eternity before now? Let's look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We know that Jesus has always been and always will be fully God. He did not become authoritative at his incarnation or exaltation, but there is a distinction that we need to make, and here it is. Before the incarnation, God the Son existed, but Jesus, who was fully human and fully God, did not yet exist. Before the incarnation, God the Son existed with all authority, but Jesus Christ, who again was fully human and fully God, had not yet died for sinners, 
and the sentence of condemnation hanging over his people had not yet been stripped from Satan's hand by the shedding of Jesus' blood. It is precisely the crucified and resurrected Savior who was, as fully human, triumphant over sin, and as fully God, triumphant over Satan, exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and thereby installed as the Lord of the universe. So put simply, yes, the Son of God always had total authority in heaven and on earth, but the distinction is that Jesus came to earth and was fully human and fully God. Once he had completed the redemption once for all, God the Father therefore exalted him to his right hand, and now, as never before, put the rule and authority of the universe, as well as the entire mission of the church, into the hands of a man, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, son of God. And as John Piper says, the first thing to say is that this authority is not the authorization of Jesus to potentially rule, but the authorization of Jesus to actually rule. So how much authority is included in the phrase, all authority in heaven and on earth? So Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This tells us what the Father has the authority to do. Jesus also has the authority to do. And so you may be wondering at this point, how extensive is his rule? And let's look at some biblical examples of the extent of this authority. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this authority contains his sustaining of the world by holding it in being by the word of his power. Now let's look at Luke chapter 8 verse 25. Who then is this, the apostles cried, that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? All of nature obeys him. Not only does Christ sustain the natural world, but he governs over all of it. Even the wind and the waves did not get a mind of their own, and they still obey him to this day. Now let's look at Mark chapter 1 verse 27. It says, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Yep. They did then and they do now. 1 John 5.18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Satan cannot touch the children of God without permission. Next, Acts chapter 4 verses 27 through 28 say, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus has authorized rule over the sinful acts of men. We as humans, quote-unquote, cannot escape the sovereign sway of God by darting down the alley of sin. Herod's mockery, Pilate's expediency, and the Jewish cry to crucify him was all part of the plan to save us from sin. And last, Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And Matthew 16:18 says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And John 10:16 says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The point of these verses is that Jesus has absolute authority and power 
over the mission of the church, and it will not fail. So now, let's ask the question, what does this trust in Christ's absolute authority do for the lives of those who truly believe in it? Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, It is my heart's desire and prayer to God that they may be saved. Have you ever wondered why we need to pray if Christ already knows everything and has authority over all of heaven and earth? Well, the answer is simple. Why wouldn't we pray to a king who is sovereign and has authority over all of heaven and earth? So I ask you in return, do you pray weak prayers? And by this I mean, do you ask God to maybe suggest to someone who is lost that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? The answer should be no. At least, I hope that's how you would answer. Instead, we ask for God to save them. We ask God for our enemies to be born again. We ask for those of different religions to have the veil taken away. We ask for them to be raised from spiritual death, to open blind eyes, for them to overcome obstacles, and for them to accept Him as Lord and Savior. These are powerful prayers that only a completely sovereign and all-powerful God can answer. Acts chapter 26 verses 17 and 18 say, I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Our trust in Christ's absolute authority gives us a hope-filled, bold, and joyful desire for evangelism, even among the hardest people. Nothing is too hard for God. We are called to do this, and God is sending us to do what only He can do. This is an incredibly glorious calling, so don't push it to the side. Open your mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal, His omnipotent, life-giving appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christ's mission will not fail, so don't hold back. And now this brings us to the part of the Great Commission, verse 19, which seems like an incredibly simple command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We're focusing on this word go, but I have a question for you. Who is exactly supposed to go? There's two viewpoints that we're going to look at today. And the first argues that Jesus was only talking to the original apostles. As of 2015, Christianity was the world's largest religion. So it seems like the apostles have already succeeded in fulfilling the commandment of the Great Commission. But on the other end, we have the popular viewpoint that the Great Commission was a command for every individual Christian to be involved in evangelism. In fact, there are some mission advocates that have quote-unquote claimed that unless you have a specific calling to stay home, you must become a cross-cultural missionary in obedience to the Great Commission. But here's the reality of it. Both of these viewpoints miss the mark when it comes to actually applying Christ's command within the context of the New Testament's teachings regarding the church and the body of Christ. Christ's commission applies to the entire church, not just to individual Christians, but including individual Christians. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4-6, through 6, Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We all have a role in the Great Commission, but we don't all have the same role. 
And we certainly see those that fulfill the role of missionary, evangelist, pastor, Bible teacher, and more. And there are those whose role is to travel across the globe to fulfill those same roles abroad. But that doesn't mean that this role was meant specifically for every single Christian. Just before the ascension, Jesus was highly specific about the locations where he expected his disciples to go. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if you're not aware, Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem when he said those words. Jesus specifically wanted them to start testifying of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension right where they were. The point was not to stop there, though. Jesus knew that some of his disciples would travel to places that were completely unlike their homeland, making disciples. But the vision and command wasn't for his disciples to hop on a boat to some far-flung part of the world. Instead, we see the New Testament putting a far greater emphasis on the faithfulness in situations we find ourselves in than it does upon physical travel. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11-12 through 12 say, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So even though traveling across the world is not the role that every Christian will have, that does not mean that we aren't involved in the quote-unquote going aspect of the Great Commission. And regardless of where we're located, our circumstances, or specific situation, there are ways in which we have a part in making disciples of all nations. Our involvement in the church and body of Christ helps to fulfill this commandment. For example, tithing enables missionaries to travel, the church to help its community, and provide for those in need. And we live in a world which volunteering in your church could have a massive impact on someone's life. More churches than ever are live streaming their services for anyone in the world to see. And your help operating a video camera, running lyrics, ushering people to their seats, or anything else, all has an impact on someone's exposure to Christ, potentially for the first time. It's the role of the church to spread the name of Jesus to all nations, and it's the role of individual Christians to be involved in that mission with whatever role best uses our talents, gifts, and abilities for His glory. So now let's talk about making disciples. We're commanded to more than just telling people about Jesus, but to make disciples. And how do we do this? A lot of evangelicals love sharing our testimonies and telling our stories and recounting our spiritual journey to others. But while this is an incredible strength and tool to use when witnessing to others, there's a subtle danger with making this the main focus. And the Great Commission's Go and Make Disciples is not go and tell your story. Those aren't the same thing. So let's look at how the apostles witness to others. First, the events of the gospel are the central focus and foundation of their proclamation of faith. And we know this through the sermons and acts that reveal how the apostles walked those who were listening through Christ's story, his life, death, and resurrection. Second, they witnessed regarding the character of Jesus in the way that they patterned their ministry after Jesus' compassion to those in need. And third, they witnessed regarding their own Christian experience. And we see Paul recounting his conversion on two separate occasions in Acts, chapter 22, verses 6 through 21, and in chapter 26, verses 12 through 23. So how do we apply this when witnessing to others? First, we must center our proclamation of faith and stories around the events of the gospel, Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And second, 
Our actions should witness to others as we follow Christ's example in our day-to-day lives and how we carry ourselves. And third, when we do tell our story or testimony, all of our experiences should back up our original proclamation of the gospel. Many Christians focus on one of these rather than on all three, and this can hinder our effectiveness in reaching others. Trevin Wax of the Gospel Coalition says, Some Christians focus so much on the third aspect, our conversion experience, that they fail to properly proclaim Christ's life and work. So keep in mind that it is important to make all three of these the focus of our evangelism. The Gospel is the entire point, foundation, and purpose for everything that follows. And our actions then display that what we tell others about the Gospel is true, that the Holy Spirit indwells within all believers, and they can see that reflected in our actions, words, and character. It is then through this foundation that we are able to relate our personal stories to the gospel. And with such a strong foundation, our stories then have that much more power, meaning, and relatability behind them. No matter your personal calling, we each have a ministry. We each have people we can witness to. And some are called across the world, and some are called to use their talents, being involved at their local church each week. But we all have the same goal under the authority of Christ, to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All of the members of the church work together to accomplish this task as one body of believers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Burning Bush Podcast. For a full transcript of this episode, along with all of the sources that we use to write this and some helpful resources for further study, please visit our website, burningbush.blog. Again, that's B-U-R-N-I-N-G-B-U-S-H dot B-L-O-G. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.